welcome back to another episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. My name is Danny. And I'm Giacomo. And this is our 32nd episode. a normal time frame that's a nice change of pace wouldn't you say what is normal anyway but yeah i'm pretty happy about it actually. guys remember when we started this podcast and we really truly thought we were gonna get one out every other week <laughs> you know we printed out like a thousand postcards or something and they say new episodes bi-weekly yeah and i just keep sending them out with every single order i'm like at some point, we're going to run out of these postcards so we can like make updated ones saying new episodes. When, when we, we can. Yeah, or when we have an idea that we want to talk about. <laughs> uh, but we thank you guys for sticking with us in spite of that. Yeah. Uh, that was one of the first pieces of advice we got from the creators of our Hen House podcast was like, whatever you do, if you create a schedule, stick to it because people will be pissed if you don't. So we decided early on to disappoint you all. <laughs> Setting that <laughs> so, so that that wouldn't be a problem going forward. But anyway. Um, oh, man. Yeah, I appreciate all the feedback on the last episode, guys, about you know not having to heavily edit the podcast, that you guys would rather have slightly less polished episodes in favor of more of them. So I appreciate that feedback, and we're definitely taking it to heart. Yeah, and I just think in general, I'd rather have fewer episodes with things that are really important to talk about and, you know, than just putting yeah, out episodes for the sake of it. You know what I mean? I agree. Uh, what have you been up to, babe? The exact same thing, and you know that because we live together. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they don't know that. They don't live training, with us. Training, <laughs> training, planning, coaching. That's pretty much it. Uh, outside of that, I guess, I don't think I've actually mentioned this on the podcast. Uh at the end of December, my sister had a baby, which was the coolest, weirdest thing ever in the entire world. Um, and ever since she's been born, I've been over her house probably at least three days a week to spend time with the baby. So that's what I've been doing in my free time. I've been doing a lot of that. And side note, the pregnancy was 100% vegan and the baby is vegan as well and doing fabulously anyway i appreciate uh i appreciate all of the feedback that i got i actually posted this on an instagram story to see if people would be interested in hearing about this topic or not because it's actually um a debate that Giacomo and i have pretty regularly as of the last like six or eight months or so and if you look back to episode 13 uh it's an episode about reverse dieting and uh you know i fully believed and agreed with everything that we said in that podcast when we said it, but that podcast is two years old now and I have uh, some pretty different feelings. So uh, Giacomo and I are going to duke it out in talking about uh, reverse dieting. So go ahead Giacomo, why don't you why don't you give a very short summary of what reverse dieting is to the listeners so that they have an idea of what we're talking about. But I'm so long-winded. How am I going to do that? <laughs> um, okay, reverse dieting in short is basically when you are uh, done with your contest prep and you've peaked for your show and you've hopped on stage and now it's time to not be dieting anymore. What do you do? 
Um, so reverse dieting is basically the, the process in which you stop dieting and transition into your off season by eating more. And I guess the question is how to do that. Um, when we say reverse dieting, I, I guess what, uh, what we're probably referring to is the slow and meticulous adding of food week by week, like to the tune of like, I don't know, 25 calories a week or every other week until you get to a caloric baseline. That, does that sound about right, Danny? Mm-hmm. And what is the purpose of this? What the, is the intended purpose of reverse the, dieting this slowly? The intended purpose of reverse dieting that slowly would be to maintain leanness um, and to gain a minimal amount of body fat um, post-show, I would say. I would think that that's the number one goal. And the idea of remaining leaner in the off-season is basically to stay within closer striking range to your stage weight. And... I absolutely 100% see why people would be attracted to that idea. And also, I have been attracted to that idea. This idea that you get to stay lean in the off-season and eat way more. Hell yes. Who doesn't want that? Everybody wants that. Um, However, in practice, I have seen very, very different things than what reverse dieting touts itself to be. But before I get into that, I would rather hear Giacomo's stance as he is very pro reverse dieting still, even two years later. Yeah, I would say so. And I guess, um, anecdotally speaking, it served me well. Um, So I'm saying to myself, well, if it's working for me, whether or not it works for everyone, it's at least worth considering um, doing again. And that's kind of the... But wait, what do you mean by it's working for you? Well, meaning that I'm within sh- uh, close striking distance to my stage weight. I'm only about 10 pounds up. My calories are pretty much where they were before I started um, Before I started my contest prep. Um, I have more muscle. Uh, it, it, you know, I, it did what it was intended to do for me. But... Here is my question, and we'll get into the other bits later. Well, first of all, no, I'll get into this now. So you were able, on a scale of 1 to 100%, how closely do you feel you were able to stick with your reverse dieting macros right out of the gate? Well, as far as adhering to my macros uh, for the reverse diet, I I didn't have a problem with adherence per se. Um, I mean, there was the fact that right after our show, we got married. And I wasn't about to stick to a stringent reverse diet on our honeymoon. Um, that was by choice. So for that full, I want to say, week that we had together, we pretty much just ate whatever we wanted uh, liberally. There was, there was, you know, it was our honeymoon. Like, who the hell wouldn't want to enjoy their honeymoon, right? Um, and then right after that, before the honeymoon and after the honeymoon, um, then it was just back to the, the reverse diet macros that were outlined from the get-go for me. And I'll admit, that was a struggle. Like, yes, I adhered to it. I adhered to it to a T, like 100% to the gram with every ounce of food that went into my body. However, um, that adherence came at a cost. I definitely felt uh, very, 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 like more than my contest prep hungry for about six months. So... So yeah, I mean, within those six months, it wasn't just the hunger that was an issue. It was the fact that my my strength wasn't there, my endurance wasn't there. 
I was still tired. Like all of the things that I felt during contest prep, I felt those for another six months following contest prep. I mean, my hormones were still out of whack, these kinds of things. So the reverse dieting did come at a price. And I guess my question is, one, is that price worth it? And I say, no. And Giacomo says, yes. Exactly. But let's get into that bit later. Let's just talk about adherence for a minute. So Giacomo, I would say, is one of the 5%, and I think that's being generous, of people who I have found are actually able to adhere to a reverse diet in the traditional sense of adding you know, 25 to 50 calories a week. Um, having, I would say that I have probably coached, I mean, I've coached hundreds of people, but of the people, competitors, like actual bodybuilding competitors who have reached stage lean levels and come out of a bodybuilding competition and tried to reverse diet, I would say, of the probably 50 or 60 competitors that I've coached out of competition season, I can think of two people who were able to comply. Now, these are people who were able to measure every gram of food that went into their mouth, sometimes for up to six months before their competitions. They were able to do insane amounts of cardio. They were able to hone in on every little detail of their life. And then as soon as the competition was over and it came time to reverse diet, two out of 60 people were able to actually stick to it. And the other 58 people, they felt like failures for failing to reverse diet properly because we had these reverse dieting goals um, before we went into the competition and then despite having a proper plan in place, which I feel like many people don't have a proper plan in place before they compete, even though we did, that did not make it any easier for anybody to comply to it. And as somebody who has reverse dieted out of several shows, um, I will say it is one of the hardest things any competitor will ever have to do is trying to add food back in without an end goal in mind a meager 25 to 50 calories at a time. It is almost impossible. And I'm not just saying it because it's hard for me. I'm saying it because it's hard for almost everybody. I think the data says it's some 3% of people that are able to do it. So there's that in and of itself. Mm -hmm. I've always said the best plan on paper is not a good plan if you can't stick to it. And over the years of practicing this reverse diet on clients and watching it fail again and again and again and again has taught me that it does not matter if on paper this sounds like a good idea because in practice it is damn near impossible. And I think it's really, really important to differentiate. We are talking to competitors. We are talking to people who have been so lean that their hormones have changed, that their metabolisms have downshifted significantly. These are the people we're talking to. If you've gone through a normal fat loss phase where you chose to, I don't know, drop 10 or 15 pounds for whatever reason you wanted to drop 10 or 15 pounds for, 
you could probably reverse diet because you haven't gotten to the point where your entire body is fucked up. Yeah. So you can add food back slowly and you're probably going to be able to do it. But I think the leaner and the hungrier you are at the end of a diet, the more impossible a reverse diet becomes. I would agree with that. I think there's a certain group of people that, that can do it without question. Um, and then obviously the, the ones who have dieted down to stage leanness um, or to extreme levels, those are the ones where it's like, there's no question. Adherence is the issue. Adherence is the issue. The issue. Nothing else. Everything else we can live with. But right. just getting somebody to be able to stick to it, um, it's really 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 hard um and i feel like a lot of these coaches out there who you know showcase their reverse dieting client successes are not showing you the other 95 percent of people mm -hmm. um so there's that and i think that in and of itself is an enormous reason why we should revisit and rethink this idea of a slow reverse out of a contest prep. <clears throat> yeah, and I think I think another thing that uh, that is worth mentioning is it really depends on the athlete too for those who could be potential candidates for a slow reverse diet. Um, is this athlete um, is this athlete going to be competing the next year? Are they going to be taking two or three years off? I mean, like this this matters. Um, say that you just competed this year and you're looking to compete again next year. Are you going to spend six months worth out of your, I don't know what, 10 to 12 months off season at best? And that's being generous. Um, are you going to spend half of your off season, um, still feeling like shit and not being able to make real gains? Well, that's, that's the next thing that I want to get to is when you are a natural drug free athlete, the gains come slow painfully slow um we've covered this ad nauseum in previous podcasts but we're talking three to five pounds a year to a guy and two to three pounds a year a year for a female um and i'm talking about people who have been training for a couple years here um new People, it's a different world. But for people who have already been training for a couple years, which you probably have been if you're competing in a bodybuilding competition, you're looking at anywhere from two to five pounds, regardless of gender. That's what you can hope. Cross your fingers and hope that all the stars align and you gain a whopping two to five pounds in a year. Taking any more time to be in that depleted state then you need to, I think, does more harm than good um, for most people. Um, psychologically, you put yourself through hell. Um, physically, you feel terrible. Like after a while of being in contest prep, you don't even remember what it's like to feel normal, <laughs> to feel normal amounts of strength and energy and sex drive. Uh, so to put yourself through another six months of it is crazy to me. But from a standpoint of gains, you will not, you're not going to build, you're gonna be in a deficit all the way up until the very tippy top of your reverse diet. And 
you will not make gains in that time. So you have just robbed yourself of six months of muscle building time in your off season. And that in a game of inches makes a really big difference. Well, yeah. And I mean, I, I don't, I don't know that I would say that you can't make any gains until you're at the tippy top of your reverse diet personally, because I was able to get stronger while reversing even for the first six months. But obviously if you're comparing someone who just ups their food right away, um, the second they stop competing to someone who's painfully and slowly reverse dieting, if you compare the two subjects, the person who's eating more stands to make way more gains, I would say, Strength way faster. and muscle gains. Yeah, I'd say so. More quickly. But, I mean, and obviously they're, they're adding body fat faster as well. Right. They may be adding body fat faster in the beginning. And also, I should point out, there's no question about that. If you increase food more quickly in the beginning, you are going to gain back body fat. But that's kind of the point, is that you need it to be healthy. You need a certain amount of body fat to be healthy. And that's going to vary not just from men and women, but it's going to vary from person to person. We all know somebody who walks around perfectly healthy and energetic at a very lean body with a very lean body. And we all know people who need to have a little bit more body fat on them to feel like a normal, healthy, functioning human. Mm -hmm. That is very individual. But who is to say, even when you're reverse dieting, you are still gaining body fat. Even when you're reverse dieting properly, you are gaining body fat. Yes. You are gaining it slowly, Yes. but you are gaining it. So right. who's to say you're not just stretching the exact same fat gain out over a longer period of time than the person who just says and makes peace with the fact that, yeah, I need to put on 10 pounds right now um, and just puts on 10 pounds of body fat right away rather than stretching 10 pounds of body fat over six months. Who's going to have more quality workouts? in their off season. Well, during that six months of time. Um, no, no, no. In the off season. Let's say we have total. Two, let's say we have two people that have a one year off season. Well, one year. Yeah. There's no question. <laughs> okay. Let's say we have two people who have a two year off season. It doesn't matter. The person who's doing it slowly is robbing themselves of six months of really good quality workouts. Even if they start to feel better at four months, that's still four months in a game of inches, four months, that's 16 weeks times five workouts. We're looking at some 90 workouts that the other person who put on body fat faster is having better quality workouts, 90 times more. But if they get into their off, their off season, they're taking more than a year off and they're, um, they're better conditioned when it comes time for them to cut. But my point is- And they who, have less body fat My to cut. point is, who is saying they are actually better conditioned? How much body fat would you say you have put on uh, since your last competition? A couple pounds, five pounds maybe. Of body fat? Yeah. 10 pounds of body weight, about five, tons of, five pounds of body fat roughly-ish. You know that that is incredibly unusual, correct? <laughs> you know that that is obscenely unusual. And as a coach, which you are, you need to stop looking at yourself as the standard when you are incredibly genetically gifted. That's a whole nother topic, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, definitely something to think about. The average person, even with a successful reverse diet, is gonna put on 10 pounds of body fat. A bigger dude is usually going to put on even more than that. Yeah, no, I wouldn't argue that. So 
who's to say that the reverse dieter has better off-season conditioning? It just took, they just got there faster. You know, the person who ate more sooner just got to that same conditioning faster than the person who reverse dieted. Do you understand? Like, let's say someone immediately after a show bumps their calories up by 500, mm -hmm. okay? Versus the reverse dieter who takes three months to bump their calories up that same 500. Who is to say that that person stays leaner than the other person? Or rather, this person just gains, you know, five pounds of body fat right away. Whereas the reverse dieter gains five pounds of body fat in three and a half months. Like, but they're still the same, except the person who ate more faster has been logging better quality workouts this whole time. Whereas the reverse dieter definitely felt like shit for the first 10 weeks of his reverse diet. I guess my thoughts, you know, are still of the mindset that when the person who had reverse dieted is, is much deeper into their off season, that they're going to have a much easier time going into their next show. So they won't have to sacrifice it. Like sooner or later, you're going to have to pay the price to shave off body fat. Right. But I'm still saying they're both getting to the same body fat just at different times. Well, I get, I mean, I guess that's something so from that we a, have to... At a point of starting a contest prep... Mm -hmm. They're both in the exact same place. Theoretically. Theoretically, They're exactly. They're both in There's... the exact same place, except the one who ate more faster has now been able to build more muscle because they had more time. Maybe that equates to a whopping pound. But again, we're talking about a game of inches. Gaining an extra pound of muscle over your competitor, it's a big deal. In the natural bodybuilding world. Right. Well, not if you have to shed that extra pound of muscle just to get lean again, though. Well, that's... We're talking about contest prep at that point, and that's a completely different beast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that's a, that's an entirely different conversation. Yeah, but I mean, there's, there's no denying the fact that someone who starts off a contest prep in a better striking... But you're still assuming that that person is in a better striking range, and I'm saying they're not. We are assuming that also, theoretically, like we well, don't know. I'm assuming it from working with people and seeing it firsthand. The people who are able to reverse diet, they still eventually will hit their body fat genetic set point. They're going to hit it eventually. A lot of times we, you know, if somebody is able to uh, be pretty compliant with a reverse diet, yeah, their weight will stabilize, their weight will stabilize, we keep adding calories, it's really cool. And then one day their weight just starts going up. Even though we haven't added anything, it just keeps going up because your body knows where it wants to be and your body's going to get there regardless. We can either get there right away or we can get there in three months slowly. Now, there is a psychological component to watching yourself gain 10 pounds of body fat in a short period of time and that's tough. That is mentally, some would say just as mentally tough as uh, reverse dieting and having to be hungry and feel like crap. Just a different kind of psychologically tough. See, and I don't really care about that. For me, it's just like, okay, what is the again, best way to do it? You are unusual. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are talking about, is what is the best way to do it? Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's a clear-cut answer. But I think for probably the last four or five years, uh, the vast majority of the bodybuilding community has come to believe that reverse dieting is the closest thing to the best answer that there is. 
And I am saying that I don't actually think that it is. Now that I have, I've done it myself like three or four times and I've done it with clients a bazillion times and seeing it in action over and over and over again, I really don't think that it is the best thing possible. I mean, there's, there's no denying the fact that for the majority of people coming out of a contest prep, um, even the experienced, I, I don't feel that reverse dieting would be like the first thing um, that I would, I would go to with any client of mine. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not in disagreement with that whatsoever. It's just the, um, how do I say this? The, uh, I just don't think that it should be something that we completely dismiss. Um, I think that there, I still feel that there are some potential upsides to it for certain candidates, albeit uh, they're a select few. Um, I still think that it's a, something to potentially look at for a very, very small percentage of people. And what, not, not what, the people who are can, those candidates? Not the people that can follow it. Not mm -hmm. the people that can follow it. Um, although that's obviously a requirement. Um, so someone, someone that I feel could benefit from it, um, obviously the people who are afraid of weight gain, but that's, that's, you know, that's like, that wouldn't be me. But there okay, are some but... people out there like that, but that's not what I'm trying to say. So you take somebody... You take somebody who has been training for, say, four, five, six years. Um, they're a seasoned veteran to the stage. Um, they have competed, you know, three, four, five years in a row. Um, and now they're looking to take more than two years off, say, three, four years off before they hit the stage again. They have a lot of time after the show to, to get their body right, um, to get their mind right, without having to worry about jumping into another show. They're also... Uh, their muscles are mature, meaning they're old, so their muscles are, you know, their, their body's not changing as much as, say, someone who's 20 years old. So, 40 year old, male, four year off season, seasoned veteran, knows who, it, knows, who knows how to, uh, is able to adhere to a reverse diet. That would be somebody I would say, hey, should we consider putting this person onto a reverse diet? That would be somebody. don't know. I can't say without actually dealing with that particular person, but I would say if they're taking an extended off season, that also means that they have ample time to do some mini cuts along the way that do allow them to shed any excess body fat that they put on in the off season without actually getting into a, a hormonal state where their entire quality of life goes down. See, but that's my point, right? Like, let's... I don't have many people to draw from examples here, which is why I'm using myself as an example. Say, say that I just did a reverse diet and I, you know, gained right away for six months. Right now, I'm in a two two year off season and I have to mini cut once or twice during this off season. Like I'm still paying for it um, during the off season, whereas opposed to, you know, I got this I got this shit out of the way in the beginning for the first six months, and now I'm not mini cutting at all. And right. I'm just steady gaining for the rest of the time in my off season. And I, I can, understand what you you're saying. I, mean? I understand what you're saying. But a mini cut does not put you in the same physiological disadvantages as hanging out at the end of a competition prep for an extra couple of months. That's very, very different. Also, uh, you cannot just keep gaining through your entire off season. You are going to hit a point anyway where 
you anything you gain from there is going to be mostly body fat and you need to cut back down a little bit to ensure that you're still in a good range to build mostly muscle but you cannot just endlessly gain muscle without putting on body fat through an off season yeah maybe maybe so i understand what you're saying you're saying i could pay for it now or i could pay for it later but i'm saying paying for it at the end of a contest prep is literally just suffering for the sake of suffering yeah, see, and I and th- I guess this is where you and I uh, differ in opinion. Because for me, it's like, you know, I, I had my six months of suffering, and now it's been a year and a half where I'm still adding food, and I'm still getting stronger, and I'm still making gains, and I don't have to worry about being potentially sidelined. Um, granted, no, my physiological symptoms would never be like they were, um, and my hormones would never be like they were coming out of a contest prep, but like, I'm still going to be distracted by a mini cut by eating less and being fueled less. I'm not going to make, you know, it's, to me, it's like, not, not so much because a mini cut is so short. Mm-hmm. We're talking six weeks or less. A mm-hmm. mini cut is so short that you're, it's almost like you cut the body fat before your body realizes what's going on. So you're still able to be strong and feel pretty good through almost the entire thing. And then by the time you kind of start to feel like crap, it's done. And you can go right back. I mean, in theory, yes. But in actuality, mini cuts don't always last only six weeks. Sometimes they get stretched out into 10 to 12. So, I mean, yeah, we've sat here. We've sat here. I mean, yeah, we've sat here and just like dissected this reverse diet philosophy that could potentially work for maybe 2 to 5% of people. So what about the other 95%? Like, what's the alternative? Do we take things from reverse dieting? Do we just scratch the idea entirely? Like, now what? I think that the best thing that you can do is to bump your calories up much faster. Like, much faster. Like, literally adding 500 calories the day after your show, I think, is a good idea. I'm not talking about just not having a plan whatsoever after a contest prep, because that also is a recipe for disaster in the opposite way. I'm not suggesting someone just gains a ton of body fat just because reverse dieting is not the answer, that gaining a ton of body fat is the answer. I'm talking about gaining a very specific amount of body fat. I'll use myself as an example because I think I'm much more in line with like the average competitor than you. So my competition weight usually is around 125. So I know that my body is happiest between 134 and 140. So I would just aim to get to the bottom of that range quickly. Uh, So, you know, gaining nine pounds over the course of a couple weeks, I think is probably a good idea. And I also think that it takes a certain amount of Uh, maturity as a competitor to be able to just accept that and after you've competed for a few seasons you realize that eventually your off-season weight is going to be what your off-season weight always is Uh, no matter how many times I've reverse dieted or um, you know just tried to stay closer to my competition weight in the off-season my body wants to be 140 pounds That's where it wants to live, is at 140. That's where I make the best gains. That's where I feel the best. That's where my strength is the best. Um, That's where my body belongs. So getting closer to that sooner allows me to have better quality workouts. It allows me to continue being an athlete instead of just 
this starved, depleted, lean bean that can't do anything but looks pretty good. And, uh, <laughs> you know, for, for the clients that I've worked with season after season after season, I have some clients that I've worked, this is our fourth season together, and we've tried multiple approaches. And at this point, I know what their off-season weight is going to get to. So get there and stay there. <laughs> and then gain yeah. from there you gain very very slowly in accordance with how much muscle we know a natural athlete can gain in a year then that's what we're hoping for that's what we're shooting for but the sooner that we can get to that place where you can make gains where you are eating enough to support that kind of training the more time you have in your off season and the off season is everything in natural bodybuilding it's almost everything. It's mostly everything. Having a quality contest prep is pretty fucking important too. But, um, you know, making sure that you're in a good place hormonally, mentally, getting your food focused. Oh my God, we didn't even talk about that. How long are you food focused while you're reverse dieting? And when I say food focused, I mean... Even when you're not eating, you're thinking about eating. You're thinking about the next thing you're going to be able to eat. You're dreaming about food. Um, you're concocting these perfect if it fits your macros meals in your brain. Uh, that's normal at the end of a contest prep. But when you reverse diet slowly, you're extending that food focus for how long? Six months. Six months of being like that. Like the psychological component of being food focused for that long to me is how... Uh, it, it just makes it easier. It's like a, um, like a tick. It's like fertile ground for eating disorders to be mm -hmm. born. And mm -hmm. many would argue that contest prep is fertile ground for eating disorders to be born as well. And I would say, yep, you're probably right. Why would we go ahead and extend that for another six months? No, 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 no. Get out of that. Pull somebody out of that as fast as you can, because competition prep is a very, the stage lean is a very fragile physical state. Mm -hmm. And I would want to pull people out of that faster. Um, and it's not an easy sell, by the way. <laughs> Reverse dieting is a much easier sell. Yeah, That's yeah, true. we're gonna be able to feed you a lot and you're gonna look damn good. Parentheses, asterisk, you're gonna feel like shit for the next half yeah. of the year. <laughs> people don't read that part. They don't also read the warnings there. <laughs> but the other one is like, hey, I know you worked really hard for six months. Let's immediately gain some <laughs> body fat so that you can feel better. Like, I think it takes several seasons of competing to realize that that is actually the better choice. <laughs> uh, most of us, we work really hard for our stage bodies. We wanna hang on to them for as long as we can. And I think that's normal on one hand, but in practice, I just don't think it's the best thing for the vast majority of people. And mm -hmm. I think that people who do live stage lean year round, season after season, eventually, most of them, not all of them, but most will face health complications, um, particularly females, um, as we just tend to naturally have a higher body fat set point. Yeah, and I think that's the hardest part of all is the fact that when it comes to competition, there's sort of like a gold standard for conditioning. Mm -hmm. And we can all get to that, and some have to work harder to get to that. Um, and the fact remains, like, just because we could all get there, <laughs> it doesn't mean that we're all going to be able to, 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 there. 
live anywhere next to near close to there. Like some people just have higher body fat set points. That's mm-hmm. just the way that it goes. But you find people who everyone's just so happy they got there, and then they they look at their competitor, their competition. And they're like, well, they can stay lean in the yeah. off season. Why can't I? Oh, that's I'm, me. That's me. I'm the one saying that. I'm <laughs> the one looking at my competition and being like. How the F can they stay like that all year round? That's their bodies. But over the years, well, most of them that I'm talking about, Some. it is their bodies. Mm-hmm. But it's important to remember that, uh, you know, judges don't show up at your house in the off season and do ab checks on you. <laughs> uh, to be a good competitor, to be a great competitor, you don't have to look like that year round. And generally speaking, you're going to be a better competitor if you have a quality off season. And that's what matters. A lot of times people who stay um, against their body fat step, set point and stay unnaturally lean for them year round tend to come back the following years looking worse and worse and worse and worse rather than if they had given their body a chance to thrive uh, in an environment with enough food and body fat. Absolutely. And don't get me wrong. You can change your off-season body composition over time by gaining more and more and more muscle because you know, you'll just, you're just going to look better that way. But it um, takes time. It takes right. years. And in the meanwhile, you have to embrace your body weight and body fat set points while you're transitioning and, and gaining into your body. Reverse dieting sells this idea that you'll be able to change your body fat set point in the matter of a season, in the matter of a single reverse diet. And for 90% of people, that's not going to happen. You might be able to be a little bit leaner, a little bit tighter, but honestly, who is to say because you have nothing to compare it to? You have no idea if you would have ended up in the exact same place anyway. Um, so, yeah, that's my new thoughts on reverse dieting, I guess, and how uh, it definitely needs to be rethought. I don't think it's for everybody. I don't think it's for most people. Yeah, actually, that was going to be my next question to you is, going forward, would you ever prescribe a strict reverse diet to any one of your clients ever again? Would there ever be a time? Yes, yes. I mean, because I work with my clients and what they want. And a lot of times that's telling them stuff they don't want to hear. But if they want to do it, if they want to try it, then I'm going to support them while telling them why I think there's a better way. And I think that's what I find myself saying to clients a lot is I think there's a better way. And a lot of times people are hell bent on reverse dieting. So we start it and then basically the reverse just gets more and more and more aggressive as they have, as they struggle to comply rather than adding 50 calories a week, we're adding 150 calories until they're back up to a healthier place. Um, and that, that's okay, you know, like we can still call it a reverse diet even if we're doing it that way. But I think it's important to remember that reverse diet and those who coined the terms reverse dieting were literally adding, you know, 10 grams of carbs and two grams of fat per week, depending on someone's weight. And that amounts to um, a big fat strawberry and two grams of peanut butter. And just think about that. Think about being starving and feeling like food is right around the corner and being gifted one fat strawberry and two grams of peanut butter. Yeah. Like it's a, it's tough. That's tough to deal with. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So 
Uh, if anybody has any thoughts or feelings or questions about this, I would, I'm happy to keep talking about it if it's something that people are interested in. Uh, I would suggest that you go to YouTube and search for the reverse dieting debate, I believe is what it's called. It came out probably well over a year ago and it was the first time that I had heard other people voicing the thoughts that I was having about reverse dieting. And I believe everybody in this debate is actually like a PhD. So <laughs> uh, they're explaining it much better than I am. But it's definitely worth watching. I think it's like an hour long. And it's a good one. I remember yeah. I was psyched when it came out and it definitely didn't disappoint. It was, It's like, you know, just something that needed to be talked yep. about. Basically. And it finally made me feel like I wasn't crazy. Yeah. You know, there were people saying the exact same things I was saying. Like, this isn't, this is impossible. Who cares if it sounds good if nobody can do it? Right. Um, so yeah, definitely check that out. But if also, if you have any questions, you can always shoot them at us online. All right, moving on to our product review this week, we are going to be covering HPN Nutrition's Pro Zero Organic Vegan Protein. So it's a new vegan protein to the market, but what I think what makes this one unique is that it's coming from a company that normally does not market to vegans. That's not their market at all, usually. Um, and they reached out to us specifically because they wanted to uh, reach the vegan market. And uh, they sent me some samples and I was just blown away by how good this protein was. And it's kind of been an issue with vegan proteins for a long time is that our protein flavors are boring. We have vanilla, Chocolate, sometimes strawberry, sugar. sometimes. Uh, Raw Fusion did a pretty good job coming out with the peanut chocolate fudge and banana nut that people really, really love. Um, but outside of that, there's really not much. So when I saw the flavors on these proteins, I was really excited. There is, they have their version of vanilla chocolate and strawberry, which is, they're pretty um, strongly flavored uh, they, to the point they call them vanilla frosting, chocolate frosting strawberry jam and then there are other uh fun flavors like blueberry scone pumpkin spice latte chai cinnamon roll with icing um and they're all really really good and also the macro profile on them is great it's 20 grams of protein two grams of carbs one gram of fat so it's really easy to fit in even if you do have um pretty low macros for whatever reason so that is really cool. And in addition to having really great macros, it also has added branch chain amino acids, uh, vegan sourced vitamins added to it. I'm sorry, vegan sourced vitamins and minerals added to them as well, which not a lot of protein powders offer vitamins and minerals in them. So that's pretty cool. And it's all organic. So that's, I mean, from a big non-vegan company, that's pretty badass actually. Because usually if you can get a plant-based protein from a non-vegan company, uh, it's usually like kind of the bottom of the barrel in terms of protein quality. Um, and also I really like the label and I know that sounds silly, but um, the label is the first thing that people see. And I feel like when a big company branches off into the vegan market, um, yes, obviously as vegans, we're like, woohoo, and we go support it.
but also we want ultimately non-vegans to try the vegan products and like them. And these are the types of labels that are going to attract um, your average Joe Schmo meathead to trying them out. So I think that's really, really cool as well. And also, as a side note, HPN um, donates some 10%, I believe, of all money they receive to the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which is really cool. The guy, Sean Torbani, uh, he is the CEO of HPN Nutrition. His brother died when he was quite young and uh, was part of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So now he donates proceeds to Make-A-Wish Foundation. So they're a great company for us to support as well. Um, so we just started carrying this protein at our store. Actually, we just launched it like two hours ago and I posted about it on my Instagram so you can check it out there. And uh, yeah, I think if you're tired of vanilla and chocolate protein powder and you want to try something different um, i've been doing the cinnamon roll with icing flavor and it's really really good so yeah we're also running a special right now where if you buy a tub of the new pro zero we are also sending you a badass vegan cookie with it as well so if you hear this podcast in the next next week um we will send you a badass vegan cookie with an order of a tub of pro zero so if you give it a shot let us know what you think of it and feel free to reach out to us on any social media moving on to our q a segment for today's podcast uh first question comes from jennifer and she asks what about seasons how do, how do you determine how long your competition season is and how many shows you do and when and how long your off season should be. So this is going to depend on the person very, very much so. But I think that in general, an off season that is less than six months is absolutely ridiculous and useless and you shouldn't even bother with it. I think an off season of a year is a good place to start And I do think that uh, newer competitors tend to compete every year for several years. And it's mostly just because they're excited uh, and it's still new. But I would say after the first couple of seasons, you start to realize just how taxing it really is on the body. Um, And usually once you have that realization, it's a good idea to take a couple years off at that point. Um, How long your competition season should be? Um, well, it depends on what you consider your competition season. If you mean the time in which you actually compete, uh, I will say that once upon a time I did, uh, two competitions that were 12 weeks apart. And that was one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made in my life. That was so stupid. I would say that if you can keep your competitions, um, in like in a six to eight week period, I think that's a good idea. Um, and as you become more experienced with competitions and you know, as like we talked about in this podcast, as your body fat step point starts to get a little bit lower and a little bit lower and a little bit lower, and you know, you're 10 years into competing and your off season body is not that far from your in season body, then you can start to look at longer competition seasons. 
Um, but in the beginning of competing where you really have to fight for that competition body, like it's very, very hard. It's completely brand new. Your body's not really used to being like that. Or oftentimes it's never been like that before. Um, you do not want to spread competing out and staying stage lean over a three month period. That is a nightmare. Um, as far as how long competition prep should be, I suggest giving yourself at least, at least a week per pound that you have to lose to step on stage. Um, so that, that's really how we would gauge, uh, how we would gauge how long your actual prep would be. Yeah. But I mean, I feel like, you know, people might not necessarily know how much they need to lose. And I think it's good to just kind of give, give a general idea. So to give a general idea, I'll like give the a bare minimum. general idea for women. Mm -hmm. uh, usually it is. Okay. So this is very, very generalized. And I hate telling people how much they should or mm. shouldn't weigh actually. So now that I'm thinking about this, I don't even think I'm going to say it. Every person is going to be different. I've had people under five feet tall compete at 115 pounds. And then I've had people who are five foot six tall compete at 115 pounds. So I'm actually not even going to touch that one with right. how much they should weigh. Well, I didn't mean how much they should weigh. I mean, how long they should prep. For. Minimum prep. 14? 16 minimum. Okay. That's my suggestion. We have a lot of people who come to us and they're like, my show's in eight weeks, help. And <laughs> no. I'm like, oh, oh my God, I don't know what to do. That's way too short. But I would say a minimum of 16 weeks. Yeah. And um, honestly, I don't, think it's a, a, I don't think it's terrible if you compete uh, more than one year in a row at the very beginning just to get yeah. the experience in. Because like, I don't care how many shows you get in your first year, like you're going to have a different attitude mm -hmm. the next time around when you compete. So to kind of do like two years back to back, even at the expense of having a shorter off season, that's okay. Especially yeah. if you're young, because you can make better gains when you're younger. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then you can sort of like, you know, really see where you stand out yeah. there take some extra time off well, yeah like after a couple of years you need to take a few years off yeah and you know if you do all the right things you're going to come back a significantly better competitor after a longer off season absolutely so experience is something to to consider when competing more than one year in a row and then after that it comes strictly to how much better of a package you could bring as to how many shows you should do in a season. That really depends on your budget mm. more than anything else, because competing is expensive. Um, I personally like to have two weeks in between shows, um, two shows back to back weekends, I think is tough. I've done it with clients, but it is a little bit tough because you're coming off the first peak week and then going into the next peak week. Um, so I think two weeks apart is good. And then if you're doing a six to eight weeks, so three to four shows, I would say. Yeah, and I think being mentally prepared, like you have to check yourself too. Are you really ready to do more than one show? Some people just get to that show and it's like they don't want to mm -hmm. do any more. I mean, it took me maybe like four or five different competition seasons before I was comfortable with doing more than one show in a season, for example. Mm, not me. I did mm. two in my first season. Yeah. <laughs> Go you. And, and they were 12 <laughs> weeks apart and it fucking sucked. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what's the next? Uh, question from Rosemary. How do you incorporate a free meal, a cheat meal, into IIFYM? Which meal to replace or which macros if you're not eating the same thing daily? Well, first off, and this, um, I'm happy I'm getting this question because uh, it, it, 
I even thought about doing a whole podcast on it. I hate, hate, hate the word cheat meal. Hate. I yeah, it's probably one of my <laughs> biggest pet peeves um, in the nutrition world. Um, I cannot stand the word cheat meal. Um, the word in and of itself uh, is has a negative connotation to it, and it almost applies that you're it, that it, you're oh, doing something wrong. Yeah, I can't stand that. Like mm-hmm. I don't cheat, cheat meal is not. <laughs> Having a meal that you don't track doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. Doesn't mean that you're you're doing damage. Like that's not helpful at all for for the mindset. Um, free meal on is the way that I like to word it. Um, and so you mentioned like replacing macros um, for a free meal. Well, I guess that's kind of not really the point of a free meal. A free meal is sort of something that you should be doing more intuitively. It's, but I understand her question. Yeah, She's I asking, if you have a free meal, what should your macros for the rest of the day be? Oh, you know what I mean? Okay, so I, I guess I misunderstood. So usually when we program a free meal, we've already, you know, we already have uh, all the meals mapped out for the day. And generally that means, you know, they're going to have a sizable pre and post-workout meal and maybe a snack or two during the day. And then the rest, the rest of the macros, I would say maybe like, maybe like 30% of your, your intake for the day. Like I would take that out of your macros and replace it with a free meal. Yeah. That's not a bad idea. 30%. Roughly. Not a bad idea. Mm -hmm. The other thing you can do is if you're replacing your dinner, go back through the week, see how much you normally eat for dinner and then take those macros out. Um, if you're following IIFYM and flexible dieting and you're doing it well, um, your meals are probably kind of similar every day. Um, flexible dieting does not mean necessarily just eat whatever you want every single day on a whim. It just gives you the freedom to change things up as you see fit. Um, but most of us that follow flexible dieting eat similarly every day. So like my dinner is the same shit every night. So I can look back and say, oh, my dinner is 600 calories every night. These are the macros. It's, you know, 80 carb, 20 fat, whatever. And pull that from my macros for the day Mm -hmm. and then have my free meal then. Yeah. That's how I would do it. Let's take another question. Uh, Nadej, and I hope I'm saying your name right. Uh, do vegan bodybuilders carb load the same way a non-vegan would? And she's referring to peak week. Yes. Yeah. The answer is yes. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, again, you can't say this for everybody because some people don't even carb load. Some people don't have to. Um, some people do have to. But in general, if somebody had to carb load to make their muscles fill out, look nice and full and tight on stage... They would have to do that whether they were vegan or not. Um, some of my clients, their carbs can get quite low in the earliest part of peak week um, as we deplete glycogen and, and stuff like that. And then, you know, carb up mid to late week. Um, and, you know, I can't say that it's the same numbers as other people because every client is different. Some people are carbing up on 150 grams of carbs. Mm-hmm. Some people are carbing up on 600 grams of carbs. So it just depends on the person, but I don't think that that particular like peak week protocol changes um, whether someone is vegan or not. And every coach is going to do it differently, but I would I would say that it's the same. Yeah, I would agree. Um, let's take Christian's question. Uh, is keto veganism a thing? 
it is a thing, actually. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it can be done. Um, it's hard. It's stupid. It's pointless. <laughs> didn't, you try, didn't you do it for a little bit? <clears throat> Not really. But what we did exper- me and my coach, we did experiment with very low carbs on dieting. And I would say my protein was higher than a classic keto. Mm-hmm. So what people think keto is, is that it's no carbs. And it is pretty much no carbs. But it's also very high in fat. We're talking 80% of your macros from fat. Um, and then a small percentage of them from protein. So protein's a little lower. Fat is super high. Carbs are almost non-existent. Yes, it can be done with a combination of, you know, tofu basically as the main protein source because seitan, too many carbs. Tempeh, too many carbs. Beans, what are beans? You can definitely not eat beans. <laughs> um, shit, you can't eat broccoli, kale, like all of that has too many carbs um, for keto. So to be in true ketosis, you need to be like under 30 grams of carbs per day. Uh, it is almost impossible to do that as a vegan, almost. And the ways that you can do it as a vegan, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. Um, outside of just experimenting with oneself, I don't think it's a great idea. Um, a step up from vegan keto would be, um, a cyclical ketogenic diet, which means you are eating traditional keto anywhere from like three to five days a week. And then the other days of the week you're eating, you're refeeding, eating um, a relatively high number of carbohydrates to um, refuel glycogen, boost leptin, all that jazz. um, And then you drop back down into keto the following days. Overall, I just think it's more hassle than it's worth. Can it be done? Yes. Did, did you ever feel better, like, at all? Did you ever get used to it when yeah. you were doing it? Yeah, I did. After about three weeks or so, weeks. I did start to get used. And my carbs were not keto low. They were 65, mm-hmm. which is still high, very high for keto. But for me, that was like, it might as well have been zero. <laughs> it might as well have been zero. Uh, it was nuts to try and eat just 65 grams of carbs a day. Like, I couldn't eat any uh, vegetables outside of iceberg lettuce, if you recall. Yeah. No vegetables outside of iceberg lettuce. Think about that because they all had too many carbs. Um, I, and I did have high carb days also, but those low days, shit, the first two weeks I felt like I was losing my brain. Like I couldn't think, I couldn't remember stuff. Um, and then after two weeks I started to feel fine because your body is a very adaptable machine. And even though traditionally your brain runs on carbohydrates, your brain can also turn both fat and protein into glucose in your body. Post-recording edit, I said your brain can turn fat and protein into glucose, and I meant your body can turn fat and protein into glucose. All right, continue. So if you're feeding it fat and protein, it's going to turn fat and protein into glucose, and it's going to be ultimately very, very similar. Mm -hmm. Um, And it didn't work. It was not for me. There was no benefit to it whatsoever in terms of fat loss, but at least it's, you know, you got to look at your body as an experiment. And that was an experiment that we tried, and we checked it off the list. Carbs all the way. Carbs. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Muscles by Brussels Radio. Feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments, concerns on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at Vegan Proteins and at Muscles by Brussels. 
In the meantime, my name is Danny. And I'm Giacomo. And we will talk to you soon. Stand in the pouring rain.